Thanks for joining us on the latest episode of This Week in the CLE, the discussion and analysis of the news by the people who bring you that news, the reporters and editors at Cleveland.com. I'm Chris Quinn, editor of Cleveland.com, and we begin our conversation today with columnist Mark Namick, politics editor Jane Cahoon, Cuyahoga County reporter Courtney Astolfi, and the best-sourced crime reporter in Northeast Ohio, Adam Faris. Hello, hello, hello. Hello. Morning. We spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about the myriad problems at the county jail, and today is no different. And the thing I want to talk about is the interest in it at the state level. First, we had the governor turning the screws, saying he was so concerned about the lack of action to the inhumane conditions that he was stepping up state inspections. Now we have two legislators, two Democratic legislators, saying they will propose legislation to fortify the law governing inspections. Here's the thing. The U.S. Marshals Service issued a report last November depicting horrific conditions at the jail. You'd have thought that this would have sparked the people responsible for the jail, the county executive, the county council, and the sheriff, to fix the thing. But here we, have, here we are, seven months later, and we don't see fixes. Jane, is that why we are seeing this unprecedented interest in our jail by the state? I'm not sure. I do know that uh, Nikki Antonio and Jeff Crossman, the legislators, the Democrats who... Um, want to start a conversation about more uh, oversight. Uh, They say they've been talking about this a while. So they've been following it. They're from Cuyahoga County. They say they're concerned. They say they've even been talking about it before the governor came out with his uh, proposal. So um, it just seems odd that seven months in, we have both of these state efforts and very little action on the county side. Right. I think, you know, if you're a politician or you're, you're a public official and um, you, uh, <laughs> the, the state obviously has some responsibility in this because they have an oversight role, um, you don't want to be the person who sat by, especially if, if you're from Cuyahoga County, and didn't do anything or try to help. With nine with, deaths With in people the past dying, year. right. right. I want to welcome Crime and Justice Editor Chris Warnowski to the conversation. Hi, Chris. Good afternoon. Courtney, we've talked before about the lack of action by the Cuyahoga County Council in regards to the jail. We would have expected them to launch weekly hearings about the jail following the Marshal Service report, but they've done almost nothing. Last week, as we discussed, instead of doing their jobs at oversight, they seem to throw up their hands and pro- by proposing we go back to an elected sheriff. They did not seem embarrassed by the governor's interest in the jail. Will they be embarrassed into doing something by the fact that legislators in their own party are taking up the cause? I think county council will probably likely continue in the same vein that they've been going the past couple months. You know, this week there was a hearing about jail issues. It didn't get into to meaty topics like the cause of red zoning and those kinds of things. But I think they're going to continue talking about the jail in those terms like they've done thus far this year. We often talk about the council without identifying them, which allows them to be faceless. So let's name them here so that they will turn up in internet searches about the jail problems after we publish a transcript. They are Council President Dan Brady, Purnell Jones, Nan Baker, Dale Miller, Scott Tuma, Michael J. Gallagher, Jack Schron, Yvonne Conwell, Chantel Brown, Cheryl Stevens, and Sonny Simon. Courtney, it's kind of amazing how little we've heard these names with respect to the jail, given that it's their job to provide oversight. How much are we, the taxpayers, spending on salary and benefits in total for all of these people? So the total number I have there is 672000 about. 
That's a lot of money. Well, even absent the council's oversight, County Executive Armin Budish says he has been working to make the jail better. He came by this week with his new jail director and others on his staff to go over the areas they say they have improved. Let's talk about them. The first is staffing. How many COs are they aiming for? Where are they at? And what are they doing to reach the number they want to be at? So they're just over about 600. That number fluctuates because COs come and go, quit after they've been hired. They're aiming for 675. The authorized number of COs to work in the jail was raised earlier this year. Council set aside some extra dollars to bring 675 in. That number should, according to the sheriff, end the practice of red zoning at the downtown jail. But uh, County Executive Budish said that he's basically given the HR department a directive to keep hiring beyond that if they get to that number because they'll likely need them. All right, let's get to red zoning in a minute. First, they said they're creating a new position at the jail. They didn't have lieutenants before, and they're going to hire eight of them. What's the point of that? Yeah, so the new jail administrator, Rhonda Gibson, told us that those lieutenants, that adds an extra layer of management, and they're kind of going to be, she said, her eyes and ears, they can be out in the jail getting information, responding back to her, just that extra layer of management. All right, let's talk red zoning, because that has been the big anxiety increasing thing. This is where they don't have enough COs, so they lock all the inmates down in their cells with nothing. Um, they, it was an interesting conversation because they had a lawyer present who wouldn't let them go into specific numbers about how much they reduced it, although at one point they said it was 90% during the week, but then the lawyer told them, stop talking. What, what's the overall picture right now of red zoning? It sounds like it's very different during the week and the weekends. Yeah, so they say on the weekend, the red zoning increases. Part of that is attributable, they say, to continued CO call-offs. They're also, they've also tried to restructure the shifts of when people are working to cover gaps so inmates aren't locked down. So it's, it's a combination of having more staff on hand and then moving the schedule around to try and reduce that. But it's still obviously going on. Chris, you were in this meeting. It was kind of astounding when we said, what, are you, what can you do to reduce these call-offs? On, on sunny weekends, they said, all sorts of people call off, and that causes them to do red zoning. And their answer was, yeah, we have to talk to the union about it. Um, this seems to be one of the most critical issues there. Were you a little bit surprised by that answer? Not really. I mean, I, I feel like it, it's it, that that tends to be an administrative reason for a lot of things. I, you know, I mean, it's 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 hard. It's it's hard to sort of see. I, I think the the COs are in a very difficult situation in that jail and i think that the county by its lack of oversight of the jail over the past few years have made a really weird unsafe environment for both the people that work there and the people who are incarcerated there and and i don't know if the co's call off is like some sort of protest or if it it is just because it's a beautiful weekend off but you know nine out of ten times when you're talking about people in law enforcement and people in corrections usually their sort of stock answer is like you know this is something that we have to address in our collective bargaining agreement they have the right to call off they have sick days you know and and so it's not it's not that surprising but i mean the level at which it happens at the at the jail is a little bit alarming i think the only point that we should jump on uh is that that is a management issue and it's not an issue that's new and it should have been addressed you know before nine people have died yeah and i think that's where Oversight, whether it's council or our legislators, you get in on you, you, you. This is a management issue. 
call-offs are a management issue, and it's been going on for a, a long, long time. time. And if the solution needs to come through the union, they just negotiated with the union, and that wasn't part of it. So, so they're behind already. The food service was abysmal when the marshal service inspected. I mean, it was like rotting food and no refrigeration for meat. Um, they say they've moved on that. What's going on there? Yeah, so they're talking about how they're soliciting proposals for a food vendor. They can pay some outside group to come in and do it so they don't have to handle it in-house, which is how a lot of jails work and operate. They put out the request for proposals for this food vendor, though, months ago, and it's still going on. Um, They said we should have an answer in like three weeks. Part of the reason for tension in the jail is that it was so cluttered, apparently. Uh, Inmates were allowed to buy, I guess are allowed to buy, as much as they want from the commissary, and they have no place in their cells to put it. Um, turns out this might have been a simple thing to fix. What did the county do? Well, the county told this group that came in to provide them suggestions that they weren't going to reduce the amount inmates could buy in commissary, but they were going to get, like, storage containers for their cells. And, and they say when the, when the uh, Corrections Association came in this week, they, they found that that actually was working and the clutter was reduced as well as anxiety. And, and then lastly, the, they said they've had thousands of, I think they said thousands of work orders for the Public Works Department to come in and do things like paint and fix things. How, how, does, how is that making a difference? Yeah, so they say that they've improved a lot of like the, the areas in the jail that were pointed out specifically by the U.S. Marshals in their November report. There was an area where folks were held before they went to court. Public Works has come in and really brought that uh, up to better standards. Just a lot of different stuff. There was there was like gonk shoved in the vents, I think, because the inmates were trying to resist like heat and, and air conditioning. Um, so they said they've cleaned out those vents, just like housekeeping, basic things like that. They've brought those standards up. All right. The... Um The county council was in the news for another reason this week, for signing off on a secret contract. They claim they could not discuss the contract in much detail because of a court order demanding their silence. Courtney, what's this about? Well, this was the law director, Greg Huth. He got up in front of the Board of Control and asked for money for this contract. It's for for software that will help them sort paperwork related to court matters. They used the same software a couple months back when they had a big sweeping subpoena request. The thing is, is I mean, it's probably related to this ongoing investigation, but the point is the county won't even say what it's for. The law director wouldn't even say it's for this ongoing case. So we don't, they just... They err on, they yeah. are away from transparency in a lot of those cases. I, I, yeah, it seems like they err against the wishes of the, or the needs of the taxpayer. And I have a hard time believing that the judge who issued this order did not want county taxpayers to know how their money was being spent. Did you try to find out? Yeah, we reached out to Judge Peter Handwork. Um, I didn't get a call back from him, but we put this question to him a couple months ago about another matter, and he told us he wasn't going to start getting into what his seal applied to with the media. Adam, you had news out of the jail, and like pretty much everything else we discuss about the jail, it's not good news. For the second time since April, a seriously bad guy was released by accident. Who was it, and how did he get out? Uh, so he was uh, had been arrested and charged with uh, killing his mother's boyfriend in, uh, in Euclid uh, June 12th. Got arrested, went, to, went downtown to the jail, and 
what happened was, so he goes to court for his initial appearance, gets a million-dollar bond, but has a traffic ticket, outstanding, pays his traffic ticket. And they let him go. (laughs) Right. So the order that that was put into his file and, and went back with him or was supposed to go back with him to the jail said, you know, this person, this inmate should be released. The Euclid Muni Court realized it within 45 minutes, they said, 40, 45 minutes, called the jail, said, hey, this is wrong. He needs to be held on a million-dollar bond, and we're going to fax over the right order right now, which they say they did. And nobody picked up a phone or nobody from the on the jail side did anything, apparently. Uh, 20, I think it was 28 hours passed before they released him from the jail. Uh, so he was in there quite a while with that, the new order, and somebody could have said, hey, there's a million-dollar bond on this guy. He's a murder suspect, uh, and he got released for two and a half days. I just wanted to jump on that point that you made, that the issue was compounded by the fact that when they realized the mistake, uh, they didn't treat it as they should. That's pretty serious. A murder suspect is out. You know, They faxed the information in. And what we do now know from that clerk of courts is that, yeah, no one really hung around to make sure someone received the facts. That's the kind of thing where they've already pledged to do better training, that you stay on that. If you have to drive down there to get an answer, that's what has to happen, and it did not. Did they get him back? They got him back uh, two and a half days later. Without um, incident. Yeah. What happened in the first case you wrote about back in April? The first case was, uh, it was it's kind of complicated but it was a juvenile court case uh in that case there was a he was a the kid was accused of a armed bank robbery connected to the rack gang in cleveland they did a bunch of armed robberies this kid was only charged with one and it was in another miscommunication yeah. where one hand didn't know what the other was it, doing yeah once it got bound over to adult court it wasn't put on the docket nobody knew he had a two hundred thousand dollar bond in the jail he posted bond in two previous cases. They only saw that, and he was released. So are they doing anything to stop it from happening a third time? I would love to know because I've <laughs> asked many, many times. Um, I know for the first one, the prosecutor's office had sort of said they were going to stop a, a sort of a procedural thing with the clerk of courts that kind of contributed to the first release. For this one... Euclid Muni Court says we're going to be much more diligent with this kind of stuff, and the county's not saying anything. You also wrote a poignant piece this week about the difficult challenges of people with mentally ill family members. In this case, it was a mentally, mentally ill daughter who beat her mother to death with a hammer, and it's all the more tragic because family members wanted to help get, wanted to get help for the daughter but actually felt helpless to do so. So what happened there? So that, that was... Uh that was also a, a little bit complicated, but uh, essentially the there was a um, girl was showing signs of mental illness, woman, uh, from the time she was about 18, 19, she went to Kent State, everything seemed to be okay, family started to notice um, little by little certain things, she talked to herself, nobody would be in the room, uh, she got uh, arrested while she was in Kent for uh, fight with her boyfriend uh, so they tried to take a number of different steps uh, mom actually took her and moved into an apartment separate from the family because when she had gotten worse she had started sort of not tar- I don't want to say targeting but 
when she would have you know episodes where she would have you know sort of get out of control it would be targeted towards certain family members so they tried to do the best they could they they even looked at uh getting um going to probate court to get a um conservator uh conservatorship but uh that was a difficult process it's hard and, to do yeah. yeah and then uh on uh was that monday or monday morning she um she had another episode and very brutally beat her mother to death. Yeah, the story really pointed out the the need for the community as a whole to to focus on um, mental health. We had a late-breaking story this week about something that's getting national attention, the federal opioid lawsuit in Cleveland. The federal judge overseeing the case, who has ruled over it with an iron fist, got slapped pretty hard by an appellate court ruling. Chris, tell us why this is a big deal. So the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that that the judge in this case, Judge uh, Polster, who is a federal judge here in Cleveland, he that he kind of over overreached a little bit when he he ordered the sealing of this uh, this Arcos database that a lot of media outlets have been trying to get through a public records request including us and um, the ruling basically says uh, what happened was is that he ordered that the DEA provide all of this data all this data that the DEA collects on wholesale prescription drug sales it, it, it has geographical information, zip code information, the amount of drugs that are distributed to different stores and warehouses and things like that. And and it's it's very illuminating in showing I think wh- where large amounts of prescription drugs were being peddled to people and getting people hooked on synthetic opioids. The DEA was ordered by the judge to give this information to the plaintiff's attorneys in the case and and to the pharmaceutical companies that are being sued nationwide and and all of these cases were consolidated here in Cleveland. But he didn't allow the media to see this and and basically said, no, you can't have this. Well, this was appealed and he said that um, that that was an overreach. That that his that he couldn't just make a blanket denial like that, and that that portions of this actually might be public, and so uh, there's a possibility that we might actually see some of this information. Yeah, and what, what's interesting about it is you know the uh, pollster was kind of using this as a as a threat of publicly disclosing this data, so as a bargaining chip, and this is what the the, the appeals court gets into, and they're saying that's not a reason to keep this from the public. And uh, so he's going to lose that ability to maybe force them together over the release of the data. But uh, the data is is critical, as we've seen when a West Virginia uh, newspaper a couple of years ago got leaked data, you know, uh, off-the-record data that showed how much, like right down to which, you know, as Chris mentioned, pharmacy on the corner was putting out the pills and how many were being dispensed there. And it really allowed them to take a look at the the problem in West Virginia – and I believe uh, one of the West Virginia media outlets is is involved in this case as well in trying to get that data out. But it will prevent Polster from using that as a stick. That's not a reason to shield the public uh, information. But, Chris, it wasn't just this individual document that the court was concerned about regarding secrecy. What else did it say? Well, it does say in, 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 the, in the decision that he they, they, they were very critical of the air of secrecy that – is surrounding this case. There have been a lot of sealed orders that have been issued in this case that that basically the courts said that he he can't do this. That that there that some of this stuff has to be done in the daylight and 
and and that he's that he's sort of overstepping in allowing a lot of what's happening in this case that has a lot of public impact to take place in the dark. Look, and we're we're the transparency guys. I mean, that's part and parcel to what we do. Um, it has felt that Polster is working sometimes on behalf of the drug companies more than the taxpayers and the people he's supposed to be serving and and not getting some of this information has been detrimental to the public. Well, I think one of the things about him as a judge as Eric Heisig who writes about this pretty regularly, uh, he he has a, a reputation of being a judge that gets people to settle. And I think part of of this, I, I mean he's put restrictions on what attorneys can say to the media. I, he's put a lot of restrictions on this and I think a lot of what he might be doing and this is speculation because I'm not in his head and I don't know how he thinks but it seems to me like he's trying to to hammer out a resolution to this as soon as he can I mean the first trials in this are supposed to begin in October at the Bellwether trials for Cuyahoga County and for Cleveland and 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 I think I think he really I, I think if he thinks that this it's going to get bogged down in public hearings and and having to to bring everything in front of him that that it's going to gum up it gum up this whole case and make it take a lot longer than it should. And check my memory here. The government was against us seeing this database as well. I mean, if this were to come out and you could show the the specific number of pills that were being sent into different communities with the tacit knowledge of the federal government. And there I mean there is some you know, I I think their logic is it's proprietary. It's it's this and this, but you know, given how far-reaching this this opioid epidemic has been, and how many people have died, and how many communities have been just devastated, both emotionally, financially, you know, I think the public has a right to know this. I think I think you know, if if drug companies were being cavalier, very cavalier about just flooding communities with drugs, if the DEA was asleep at the wheel and not paying attention to the data that they produce. That does not look good for the government, and that does, certainly does not look good for the pharmaceutical industry. Let's turn our attention to Columbus. Jane, a state Senate committee worked late Wednesday on the Senate version of the budget, releasing a big package of stuff that they want to uh, to get passed. Break it down for us. Well, we're, we're headed for the budget showdown between the Senate version and the House version. Uh, there are the things that we've discussed before that the Senate put in there, deeper income tax cuts, and um, they restored the whole uh, business income tax break that was, um, that's was that been kind of controversial. So those are two big points that they're going to have to resolve next week in this conference committee. Um, the Senate also made other tweaks. They added some uh, high school graduation requirements, um, fewer tests, uh, but requiring students to earn these diploma seals in various categories. Um, and so uh, w- we'll see how it all breaks down. They've got, you know, a little more than a week um, starting Tuesday to resolve these differences. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see who prevails there. One of the functions of state government that we all have to deal with is the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. Does anyone enjoy that experience? Raise your hand. (laughs) Love it. I think it's safe to say that few people find that experience uh, anything less than tedious, but we have news this week that offers hope for improving it. Jane, how will that work? Uh, Well, the governor rolled out this new online, um, I think it's called, what is it called? 
wait in line online or something. Um, it's like if you go to uh, Great Clips and and you um, you check in ahead of time. So uh, it's only being tried at like a dozen licensed bureaus. There's only one in Northeast Ohio in Bedford that's doing it right now. Uh, you go online, you tell them why you're coming, and you reserve a place in line. They give you like a spot no higher than third in line, I think, when you when you get there. Um, the the governor was asked, well, what about people who aren't, you know, online savvy? Does this put them at a disadvantage? And he said, well, you know, they're piloting this thing. They're going to kind of see how it all works out. And but let's face it, know. if they're online savvy, <laughs> they're not online savvy. You don't want them in front of you in line anyway. <laughs> also out of Columbus, some good news for people concerned about Lake Erie. DeWine took a stand that was not unexpected, but is nonetheless heartening. Right. The governor's continuing to show his love for Lake Erie. He went to a uh, Great Lakes conference in Milwaukee and recommitted the state to reduce phosphorus levels by 40% by 2025. It's fascinating how far we've come because I remember it was about seven, eight years ago, uh, Kasich was in this office pounding the table <laughs> saying he would never reduce phosphorus limits, and now there is the conclusion that we need to reduce Well, <laughs> it, and it does put DeWine, uh, you know, in, in some political, uh, I guess, under some political pressure because we know that the rural areas, and he's well familiar with them, they fight this. The farmers have fought this reduction because they feel it unfairly burdens them and their use of fertilizer runoff. But So this is a pretty bold stand. And Yeah. Uh, but I will say, as you've just noted, we've, we've heard this from governors before. We know Voinovich was a huge fan of the lake, uh, even Taft. And, and, and now here we are, though. We still have all this, this problem. It's going to take more than a, a couple of pushes. And we should note that there isn't any um, thing that holds them to this agreement. We had a visit this week from the YWCA of Cleveland. Margaret Mitchell, who heads the Y, told us that in the years since her organization began running the women's homeless shelter on Payne Avenue, they've had some remarkable success. Courtney, what's the measure they used to come up with that? So the YWCA told us this week that they have housed, in the past 12 months of them running the shelter, they've housed 300 women. Yeah, but to say what that means, because we were confused as hell by that phrasing. What that means is, instead of, they took 300 women and moved them into stable housing. Out of the I mean, shelter into home homes. I mean, they house hundreds of women every day right, at the right. shelter, right? But, but this is where they move them into stable homes. Right, and and they compared that with the year prior to them moving in, and they said in that year it was um, the shelter had only housed about 89, so that's a, that's a big increase. Getting homeless women into stable housing is not enough, they said. It's, it's keeping the housing stable long-term after that, and to that end, they actually added a new position this week. What's that person going to do? Yeah, this new position is there to really work with the women as they transition into permanent housing. So the the new employee will be with the women for about three to four months following up with them. It might be, let's grab a cup of coffee. And they talk out any issues, make sure they're getting the help in the community that they need. And then they're also there to mediate any disputes with landlords. And that can kind of rear its head as folks are adjusting. Mark, you are one of the, the chief reporters on the Greater Cleveland Project. And you saw firsthand how important stable housing is. You know, what, 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 what 
you. Is this a, a good step? The here? county's been talking about it for years, and they've made progress both on the, you know, with, with families, the priority, obviously, housing, stable housing. And uh, what we've seen is that lack of stability hurts education, hurts the ability for people to continue work, and it traps them in poverty. So that's a, it's a huge step forward. And on, on this shelter in particular, what really led to the change were or not only the lack of placement into housing, but you go back to 2017 when the outgoing uh, head of Northeast Ohio Coalition of Homeless, Brian Davis, had you know that pretty dramatic press conference in which he's quitting, and he says, you know, we can't, I can't stand pregnant women sleeping on the floor anymore, and he was referring to the shelter under the uh, management of Frontline, and that uh, what we're seeing, and it's only been a year now with the YWCA, is is a f- you know a fantastic turnaround. Well, they also said that they've put a whole lot of money into addressing some of the root causes of homelessness, yeah. the addictions and things. It gets back to the wraparound service issue, which you see more and more edging into schools. It's an issue that if you're going to address poverty, it has to include that. They did say that the building is uh, is failing them, that it's yeah. not the best setting. They'd like to stay in the general vicinity, but, Courtney, that'll be tough because this the neighborhood is kind of going up. We're in the same neighborhood. We, uh, we know what's happening here. That seems like for them that's going to be one of their challenges, but I think that's going to be a priority. And since we began this podcast with a long look at the county dysfunction at the jail, we should note that Mitchell had some good things to say about county government, which pays for the shelter. What'd she tell us? She basically said that the county had had worked with them and been open to to make some changes and provide them some f- flexibility so they could bring in these big changes and, and county support. All right, it's time for a break. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Everyone has their favorite writer at Cleveland.com, and now you can get a bit closer to them through Cleveland.com's Project Text. Each weekday, they will send you a text message about what they are thinking as they go about their reporting. It's a unique way of engaging with Mary Kay Cabot as she covers the Browns, Doug Maurice as he thinks about Ohio State University, Corey Schaefer as he shares insights about the Justice Center, and many more. There's a small fee, which we use to support our journalism. Check it out at cleveland.com slash project text. We're back on This Week in the CLE podcast. I'm Chris Quinn with Mark Namick, and in this segment... Data guru Rich Exner, federal court reporter Eric Heisig, and reporter Mary Kilpatrick. Certain pieces we publish on Cleveland.com are guaranteed to rocket to the top of our standings, and one of those is the annual listings of Ohio's biggest employers. Rich, you published the 2019 version this week, and as expected, it rocketed. We had a change at the top, and we had some big names fall off the list. What are they? Well, at the top, Cleveland Clinic has now overtaken Walmart, two very different employers in Ohio. Um, that, that's a big change at the top. Overall, it's filled with a lot of retail and medical uh, institutions, um, either stores like Dollar General, Dollar Tree, and then on the medical side, Cleveland Clinic and other hospitals around the state. What's striking about this list every year is how many of the biggest employers have workforces that are not really paid well, retail, insurance, banks. I mean, really, once you get past the clinic and the, and the medical companies you discussed, we don't have a lot of employers in Ohio that pay well. That's, that's what really shows up. And, and I look back over time, and, and it's, it's really changed, and no surprise. And a lot of these, whether we're talking about hospitals or, or Dollar General and Walmart, they're they're essentially retail businesses. For the most part, they're doing business because they have to be at a certain place. And 
we're kind of getting uh, at the point where we're lacking places that don't have to be in Ohio that are big draws in Ohio. I look back just out of curiosity to to nineteen ninety five list, and in the top ten were General Motors, Ford, General Electric, AT and T, Procter and Gamble, and then right out of the top ten was uh, Chrysler at number eleven. Wow! And you get nowhere near that list. I mean, some of those are still spotted in there, but they're nowhere near the top now. They're very just a handful of businesses that actually don't have to be doing business in Ohio that are creating a lot of jobs here. There were there were names that fell off the list. Sears wasn't really unexpected, but also Parker Hannifin, right? They fell off, which was surprising because that's not a company that isn't doing well. No, that that's a company that's that's been around. I mean, they're apparently not employing as many people here as they used to, uh, and that's where Ohio, you know, twenty or thirty years ago had a, quite a few in Cleveland and the Fortune five hundred companies like TRW are no longer around or or other companies, even even like uh, regional companies when you used to have a Refco or. Or, or you don't have the large employers like that. Now, on the plus side, I noticed that Sherwin-Williams employment's been up. I think they made a big acquisition uh, in a year or two ago. Uh, so you do have some. They're not totally devoid, but we used to have more Sherwin-Williams-type companies. It's interesting that we're now eight years in to, to Jobs Ohio, and it, we're going in the opposite direction. I mean, when you look back like you did and you see what we had back in the day versus now, the jobs we're getting are not. It's amazing. The, the powerhouse employers like Walmart and uh, Cleveland Clinic are close to 50,000, and then it's a big drop off to twenty to 30,000. When I looked at that list, uh, the 1995 list, General Motors employed 63,000 people in Ohio. So that's more than anyone now. Ford employed 24,000. I mean, really big numbers have, have really changed as our economy's changed. You uncovered another trend in the data you study having to do with taxes. As we mentioned earlier, legislators are in a battle on the budget, and the battle is to see who can provide the biggest tax cuts. You reminded us of the days when a budget surplus resulted in something different than a tax cut. What did you find? Uh, it used to be if there was enough money left over at the end of the year, uh, they, they just changed the tax rates for, for one year to, to spend that money out and give it back to the people. And it, it was signed into law by uh, George Voinovich, the former Cleveland mayor who became governor before he was senator. And it was, you know, kind of made sense. If there's money left over, let's give it back. Uh, the biggest year in 1998, I think it was like a 9% reduction in income tax rates. But then you're not hemmed in if the economy goes sour. Uh, and uh, in, instead of those type of cuts, we've now gone to a system where the rate just goes down every year. And then when the economy goes bad, oh, my, we don't have enough money. Let's see all the things we can cut. Um, kind of is different. To, you think about conservative fiscal policy. If you're an investor, you, you, you play it safe. And conservative politics is a little bit different. Well, you could argue that by reducing the, the, the tax rate and limiting the money available, if the economy turns south, the state should tighten its belt like everybody else has to. That, that would, And I'm sure that's the theory of doing this, is that people who don't like taxes, period, would want to want to get them as low as possible in good times, so then when bad things go bad, um, you're working at a point of what can you cut as opposed to uh, keeping tax, you know, tax rates where they used to be. I guess on the other hand, when things go south, it's probably when the state needs to spend more money. So if they really are lacking, then we could be in greater trouble. Yeah, I think uh, tuition and so forth it uh, doesn't go down in, in bad times. Eric Isaac, you've had one hell of a week writing about everything from Quicken Loans to corruption to Anthony Sowell. Let's start with Quicken Loans. What was the news there, and what is its tie to Cleveland? Well, its tie to Cleveland is just about everywhere downtown. Uh, Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse, formerly the Quicken Loans Arena, ends up anchoring downtown in many ways. Of course, that's where the Cleveland Cavaliers play. play. But Dan Gilbert and his Michigan-based company ended up uh, settling this week with the Justice Department for a years-old lawsuit 
basically it was a false claims act lawsuit that said uh, there was some sort of mortgage fraud going on with some federally backed loan for lower income people they ended up paying 32 and a half million dollars for a lawsuit that's about four years old now that sounds like a lot of money but you could actually argue that dan gilbert won this battle given the amounts the government has received in similar cases is that a fair statement or could you argue in one side he won on another side he really lost well i guess you can look about winning and losing in, in two ways one is the money amount uh, you know i did a story actually after i did the one about the initial settlement that compared it to other companies some of which paid tens of billions of dollars this is tens of millions of dollars on the other hand i, I think about winning and losing because of just the aggressive campaign they ended up waging against uh, the justice department for this lawsuit they ended up suing to try to prevent the lawsuit from being filed and aggressively litigated it to the point where it was about 109 loans at issue instead of uh, several hundred. So, you know, in terms of winning, they see that as a victory because of that. But but in your story, I'm not buying the argument by Quicken Loans. They're simply paying the government the cost of the loans because when you do the math, it doesn't pass the sniff test. 109 loans and it costs the government 30-some million. That's a lot of money per loan. Right, and, and these loans are backed by, or basically through a program through the Federal House Housing Administration, part of housing and urban development, generally dealing with lower income uh, residents in the U.S. I don't think lower income residents in the U.S. are taking out million dollar uh, mortgages. <laughs> no, certainly not. We took a trip back in time this week with the name of Nate Gray being in the news almost 15 years ago before we had DeMora and Russo in the latest county investigation. We had the Nate Gray corruption case. It was a big, big deal because he was a close ally of longtime Cleveland Mayor Michael R. White. And when his case was over, he was sent to prison for a very long time. Eric, you weren't around for the Nate Gray case, so you had to study up on it for the story you wrote. You know, what did we know? I think you actually helped me quite a bit with that because you certainly were around at that time. Um, uh, Basically, this was the uh, case that ended up preceding the larger corruption case that came a few years later that really just changed county government forever. Um, that involved city people. And this one was really one that, you know, took down, I think, seven or eight people, including former East Cleveland Mayor Emanuel Ananwar. And at the same time, um, Mike White was a guy who was essentially accused of, you know, taking, giving bribes, doing all the stuff, and at one point essentially accused of being a bagman for Mike White. Now, I'm going to say this right now. Mike White was never charged. He did not run again after that. I'm not saying there's any correlation, but there was no accusations, at least in a criminal aspect, that he did anything wrong, but he was certainly brought up quite a bit in that case. And the fact that that Nate Gray went away for as long as he did, um, rather than provide evidence against Mike White, does cast doubt on whether he had evidence against Mike White, because who's going to give up that much time? He did go away for a long time, and you'd have thought that that might discourage people from committing corruption, but it was after this that DeMora and Russo did their worst deeds. We've had no end of corruption cases since. Mark, is there any sign that the public officials will eventually figure this out and stop stealing from the taxpayer? No, they have short memories, because even... Yeah, in light of that, we've seen it on small levels from uh, a couple council members over time going away. Um, you know, Joe Jones, who's back on council, Bobby White, uh, Sabre Pierce Scott, right there's three. Now, she was caught up in the, in the bigger. Cuyahoga County one. Now, that the memory, unfortunately, is too short. 
Um, you know, and, and, and I want to jump back on the Nate Gray thing. Uh, you know, what, over 15 years in prison, there was a point at which uh, he, he, you know, got held in contempt of court for not cooperating, you know, in, in, in cases that filed where he was asked to testify. Um, you know, the term power broker, you know, that's always been attached to him. I think we've we've seen that fade. There isn't a lot of the power brokers for an elected official anymore. We certainly don't see that with with Mayor Jackson. He has a kitchen cabinet, no doubt, and, and, and people close to him. But, you know, that era seems to have faded a little bit. You had power brokers related to the county commissioners at the time, but you just don't see that now right who could we point to as the power broker for armin butish you know they're just <laughs> no maybe one, the new no one's going to admit it That's no one will it, admit right? that even if they are it how old is uh nate gray now he's 61 years old and to kind of piggyback on what mark said um that contempt of court that he was held and actually ended up adding another 18 months to his 15 year prison sentence and he got out monday and he's essentially on community confinement uh, which means he is home, but he is still yeah. technically an inmate for the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Yeah. And I, I did hear from uh, in, in a text from you know a person claiming they were close to, to his grandson or grandchild and, and knew the family and felt uh, that you know he just served his time and uh, wants to be left alone and move on, and that he's happy. I saw photos uh, of him. You know, we've described him in the past coming into court as looking pretty worn and. And uh, you know, beaten down, so to speak. But I, you know, what, did, what was he doing in the pictures? Uh, Smiling with his family. Yeah, yeah, he looked uh, looked all right. Eric, you had reason to write about another infamous case from back in the day. It must be a lot of fun going through the archives. This time, it was the case of Anthony Sowell, which is one of the creepiest cases we've ever seen in this city. What's the news in that case? So we have had. I mean, Anthony Sowell is now on death row convicted of the murder of killing 11 women, um, assaulting several others. Uh, this was a, a lawsuit that had been pending for about eight or seven, seven to eight years, maybe nine years even for one of them, uh, for a couple of women who were attacked by him but ended up surviving. There were several others, of course, who did not. Um, and what was interesting about this is the city ended up settling this week after a mediation. Now, these were two women, one of which uh, was attacked in December 2008, um, and in that case, Anthony was arrested, ultimately let go because of some issues that the uh, detective and the city prosecutor at the time ended up raising about the credibility and the evidence. After he was released, he ended up killing six more women, according to prosecutors. Uh, and so, you know, that, you know, these people sued uh, these two women, Latundra Billups and Gladys Wade, and the city ended up settling with them. We don't know how much, though, as we never do until they actually write the check, right? Or at least sign the settlement agreement. This was uh, borne out during a mediation Monday in federal court. The city has refused to say how much. Uh, their side would not say how much either. Uh, Wade and Billups' side would not say how much. Um, there was a larger settlement for this in September for the families of six women uh, that were killed by Seoul, and that was a combined million dollars. Okay, finally, you had a small piece of a big Supreme Court ruling this week that rejected the idea that it is double jeopardy to try people in both state and federal court for the same general crime. I actually thought there was a chance the court might rule differently and overturn that precedent, and so did someone else in Cleveland. Who was it? It was a Jones Day attorney named Louis Chaitin. Uh, ended up representing an Alabama man, pulled over. Uh, he was a felon. He had a gun in the car. 
was prosecuted in state court for having a gun. Uh, after he was sentenced for that, he ended up getting a federal charge for the exact same conduct. The Supreme Court ended up saying uh, these are two sovereign states, these are two things, the state and federal government are two completely different governments. So yes, under the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, all of that good stuff, you can certainly uh, face the same charge for the same conduct. Is and, he a Cleveland-based attorney? Uh, Lewis, yes. He yeah, is. so he, how did he end up representing somebody from Alabama? I am not 100% sure on that. I could call back, come back and get that for you, but I know that... Um, you know, it's not uncommon for some of these large cases for them to get experienced litigators and defense attorneys to go in front of the nation's high court, which in the legal community is one of the highest honors you can get. We need a breather from all this serious news, and Mary Kilpatrick, you have it. People in Northeast Ohio haven't been excited about the Browns in a long time. This season looks promising, and for people in Berea, there's a different kind of promise. What happened there? Yeah, so the Browns were already locked in to remain in their Berea headquarters. Uh, When I talked to the mayor, uh, they have been in Berea for as long as he can remember, the late 1960s. But they were already locked in through 2029, so for the next decade. Uh, They made the announcement that they are remaining in Berea through 2039. Uh, This may not be a big deal to the regular Browns fans, per se, but it's a big deal to the city of Berea. Um, The Browns make up about 25% of their income tax credit, which varies year to year, uh, not credit, tax uh, income. Um, It varies year to year, but generally over $3 million, so a huge deal for the city. And for the fans, many of whom go out there, um, this does head off the worry that it existed for a while that they'd move their training facility to Columbus to try and build a fan base there. That's been discussed several times. Jimmy Haslam has now bought the uh, the soccer team in uh, Columbus. So this should give fans who like, who make part of their lives going out to, to the training camp should give them some confidence they can do it for a while. Yeah, the the Browns are certainly signaling they plan to stay in Berea for the long term. And uh, in a statement, they said they're happy to stay home. So um, good things for Berea, and uh, the Browns seem happy too. All right, we'll take a break and be right back. You are listening to This Week in the CLE. The movers and shakers of Ohio start their mornings each weekday by getting up to date on statehouse news and politics through Cleveland.com's capital letter newsletter. If you want to know what they know as they make the decisions that affect your life, subscribe to Capital Letter at cleveland.com backslash newsletters. Best of all, it's free. Hard to believe, but we are already in the third segment of This Week in the CLE. I'm Chris Quinn with Mark Namick, and in this discussion, Special Projects Editor Laura Johnston and reporters Evan McDonald and Bob Higgs. Let's go to Euclid, where the police have gained infamy for their treatment of people of color. Euclid was featured prominently on the serial podcast about criminal justice that was based in Cuyahoga County and not in a good way. Evan, we have some news out of Euclid about a particularly famous police beating. Which beating was it, and what's the update? Earlier this week, a legal advocacy group called the Legal Advocacy and Writ Warrant Services Foundation filed a letter to the U.S. Justice Department asking them to open an investigation into what they call a pattern of excessive and deadly force, police brutality, and intimidation. The letter lists at least seven instances since 2016, most notably the 2017 beating of Richard Hubbard that was caught on video and went viral online. Now, the officer in that beating video, Michael Amiot, the city initially fired him, but he was reinstated. 
there's still a civil lawsuit against him and the city and the city is still reviewing his conduct they hired a special prosecutor to determine if he should face misdemeanor charges but there's even controversy with that appointment that you wrote about what what's that controversy the special prosecutor that was hired to take a look at the case dominic vitantonio is a longtime defense attorney who has often represented police officers who've been accused of uh, various misconduct most notably perhaps is a hudson police officer who was accused of fatally shooting a case western student from the united arab emirates now the officer and that was never charged but he represented him he also represented a montville township police officer who left his police dog in a cruiser and the dog died of uh from the excessive heat the the most he could come up with even if he decided that Amiot had done something wrong is a misdemeanor right it's the 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 whole idea of it being there is that it wouldn't be a felony correct so Cuyahoga County Prosecutor Michael O'Malley's office already looked at this, and they determined that they could not prove that Hubbard suffered serious injuries that would be necessary to prove a felonious assault charge. So they sent it over to the city of Euclid to consider the misdemeanor case against him. But they did also say they were going to speak to the U.S. Attorney's Office to determine if Amiot should face uh, federal charges. Okay. Bob Higgs, you cover Cleveland City Hall, where city council is on recess, but the news never sleeps, even if some city workers appear to do so. One of the more interesting stories we've had this week is that a, how about a guy mowing a lawn can take out an entire bridge. How does that work? The uh, bridge is the Swing Street Bridge, or the, the Swing Bridge on uh, Center, Center Street. Uh, it connects the east side and west side of the flats. Right down by the flat iron. Right down by the flat iron, right. Uh, it's very old bridge it's more than 100 years old it's the only bridge like it in cleveland it's got this unique design there aren't very many of them actually in in the country um and on the west end of the bridge the along the river there is a small park area and the city takes care of cutting the grass there and last wednesday they had a city worker there cutting the grass on a, a lawn tractor he hears the alarms go with the bridge that warns you that it's going to open gets out the lawn tractor to get out of the way because the bridge swings low to the ground and uh, gets himself to safety but when the bridge passed over the lawn tractor it hit the tractor damaged the undercarriage of the bridge knocked it out of commission for several days so how long did it take to fix it and do we know the cost yet we don't know the cost yet we know they had to order parts for it um, it went down wednesday they wrestled with it all day Wednesday. The, the city's communications director told me Thursday about 1 in the morning they finally called him to confess they couldn't get it going again. Uh, over the weekend they got the parts and then they ran tests on it Monday to make sure it was working properly and by Monday at lunchtime it was back open. I don't even know if this insurance term would apply here, but was the tractor totaled? <laughs> the tractor's a mess. <laughs> Any word on what happens to the guy? Uh they're going to have some kind of investigation and he could face some discipline presumably um i think it's one of those 
sort of, in hindsight, really silly-looking, innocent mistakes. I just pictured the parks and uh, the public works director sitting at his desk when he gets the phone call, and his first answer is, you did what? I just He got it back on pretty online pretty fast, I would say, because last fall the Columbus Road Bridge was out for weeks and weeks, and they just... So I, I was impressed by the speed that they got this back on. I know, but this is kind of like if, I know. If, if you're on train tracks and you get out of your car to get out of the way to <laughs> your car right. there, don't why the don't car. you just drive up that little <laughs> slope of grass just right. a bit further? Um, because this hasn't happened before, and we've been cutting that grass for decades. I just get the feeling that if you were watching this, you'd have Cleveland's cracked up. trying to come back. Oh, the commenters on great, Facebook love this. This one. is another great, you know, mistake on the lake Only uh, joke. I think we should push for for uh, bringing all that back up. Well, it sounds like push something worthy of an old Laurel and Hardy sketch or something yeah. like that. Is there a T-shirt made for it yet? Let's wrap up the news discussion with something good, the successful close of the Greater Cleveland Food Bank's annual campaign. Laura, how much did they raise and how many meals will it provide to people in need? So it's 22,164,389 meals, and that is a new record. Um, helped over the line by a $77,000 um, contribution from Medical Mutual. Um, and that is about $5.4 million they raised. More than $1.4 million of that came from the checkout for hunger at the grocery stores where you can add on a dollar or $5 to your total. Um, and there's plenty of... Um, of donations that food donations that come in too so this is a big deal they broke the record and they've already got a head start for next year because the chair of of uh, the event uh, already donated ten thousand dollars for next year and the company medical mutual matched that too there's no end of nonprofits in this region i mean really there's no end of nonprofits in the region but there's something about the food bank it's like 100 percent goodness right they just provide food to people who are hungry so is there a lot of celebration of them hitting the goal so they had a big breakfast and um they gave out awards to all sorts of people like um the most creative fundraising um cuyahoga county community college had um a tournament where competitors bowled over inflatable penguins so yeah it's really um i think everybody feels good about this if you give a dollar that's up to four meals at the food bank obviously they work a lot um in their big east side um warehouse with volunteers so i think a lot of people feel very close to it i know cleveland.com uh, goes every month to to help out and so a lot of people feel really tangible and close to the food bank and their their efforts and the summertime they need even more help they need even more donations because those kids that are normally in school are not getting the federally uh free and reduced lunches right now yeah that's the key the campaign might end but the need never ends and they take donations year-round we're heading into our final segment after the break, talking about what goes into rating Mitchell's ice cream flavor by flavor by flavor, and a look at the best food trucks in Cleveland. It's this week in the CLE. Trying to cut through the noise and stay up to date on news that's important in Northeast Ohio can be challenging. We have a small solution, and it's free. It's our weekday newsletter, The Wake Up, which arrives in your email first thing in the morning, meaning you can start your day fully up to date. Join tens of thousands of others who use The Wake Up to be in the know. Sign up at cleveland.com slash newsletters. We are wrapping up this episode of This Week in the CLE with a topic that could not be more appropriate for summer, ice cream, and food trucks. I'm Chris Quinn with Mark Namick, and I'm with Life and Culture Editor Mike Norman and freelance reporter Alex Darris, who had the oh-so-challenging duty of ranking all of the flavors of Mitchell's ice cream from first to last. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. So, Alex, what goes into something like this? What was your process? 
Um, well, because it was at nine in the morning, I didn't really eat anything beforehand. And I kind of knew that no matter what, eating more than 30 flavors of ice cream wasn't going to feel great afterwards. So um, I kind of went in and it was really exciting because I got to try all the flavors at such a popular place around here. So it was really cool to be able to do. So what were your top five? Um, number one was the caramel fudge brownie because Mitchell's makes all basically every ingredient that they put into their ice cream except for the cookies and cookies and cream so it has like really good homemade fudge brownie pieces and stuff and then number two was pralines and cream because it was a classic um and then number three was pretty surprising to me because mitchell's has two pie flavors one's like key lime and a banana cream so i picked key lime because it was they make their own pie crust and it's really refreshing and good for summer and then the last two were the lemon black raspberry yogurt and the Bing ch- cherry chocolate chunk because they were unique flavors. Have you heard from people who disagree? I mean, everybody has their own favorite, right? Yeah, I got a lot of hate for putting cookies and cream last, but the only reason <laughs> I did was because you could get it. They don't make that ingredient, so I thought it was something you could get somewhere else. So, Alex, uh, how did you cleanse your palate between all those flavors? And really, did you have a spit bucket off to the side? What, was this like wine? What did you do? Um, no, I actually ate everything, which probably might have been a better idea to get a spit bucket. But I was just kind of drinking water in between and trying to eat more than one bite of each flavor so I could really grasp the taste of them all. She so. did tell me that she had to tell the Mitchell staff to slow down because they were scooping the ice cream so fast that she was getting brain freeze from uh, eating. Yeah. Yeah, it was intense. <laughs> Did you feel like an incredible sugar high like uh, oh, through the yeah. day and then the almost a hangover the day after from it? Yeah, I had to take a nap in the afternoon <laughs> after doing that so early in the morning. Mitchell's is a big deal in Northeast Ohio. Why do you think that is? Um, I think because it's so good, because it's all homemade, and there's locations kind of almost anywhere you are, so it's easily accessible. And it just, like, I think their whole... It looks like an ice cream shop you want to go into the summer. It's cute and bright, and they have unique flavors that are also not too crazy, so everybody can go there and enjoy it. So. All right. The other thing you did, you put together a big piece on food trucks, listing 73 worth visiting and what you should get from them. What were the top finds from that exercise? Um, well, frankly, Cleveland has a lot. <laughs> it was like kind of the first thing. And you really can kind of get anything from a food truck. Like there's food trucks that serve more than like 150 kinds of like southern food and sides and then you can get there's a food truck that serves full drinks and actual pineapples so it's like anything you want at a restaurant you can pretty much get at a food truck mike you keep arguing to me that food trucks are huge in cleveland and that this is a bigger thing than the ice cream ranking why do you argue so well, I mean, Cleveland has this very well-deserved reputation as a foodie town with all the restaurants that have opened up in the past two decades. And part of that is that the entry cost of getting into the food game, even if you're a great chef, is lower with food trucks. So a lot of great chefs who don't want to, like, ply hours and hours and hours in restaurants working late, late, late will open a food truck. So it's an easier way for very creative people to get into the business. And we had 73 of them. I mean, there's like six of them just dealing with Hawaiian ice, for goodness sakes. So, so I mean, cut through it. We, we, for both you and Alex, if you had to pick the one food truck not to miss in Cleveland, which one would it be? I think that the Mana food truck is really interesting because it's like 
they have stuff from like pulled pork and tater tots but everything that they make is like really fresh and good so i feel like that's one if i see it at a festival and i don't know what to get i it's kind of a go-to so. do we ha- do we have too many taco trucks um so i th- thought that we had too many barbecue trucks but there are quite a few taco trucks too but so. can you actually have too many taco trucks uh, yeah. <laughs> is I that guess, physically they possible are all over the place so it's not like they're all at the same place at the same time uh, I love, and you know, not a good thing for a type two diabetic. But I love the donut lab. But I have to, <laughs> look, I have to ration myself on those. Uh, but food trucks have come a long way. Let me uh, make my point this way. My father was an iron worker, so uh, they had food trucks before food trucks existed. They would, they, there would be these silver trucks that would come and feed these workers at six thirty seven in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um but he would you know, you might get an egg sandwich, but most of that food was, was processed. It was either just heated, but you know, an iron worker is gonna eat just about anything. So boy have we evolved and I think this is great. Um I wish he was still around, he could could try these food trucks on a morning shift. Yeah. And uh, th- those guys could give you a good review. So food trucks and Mitchell's, everything you need to know to get some pretty good things to eat in Cleveland. You'll find both of Alex's pieces on cleveland.com. That does it for this episode of This Week in the CLE. Please be aware we will not have an episode next week, but we'll be back on Monday, July 1st with a special Independence Day week episode and again on Wednesday, July 3rd with an abbreviated episode summing up the latest news. What makes This Week in the CLE truly unique in Cleveland is that everyone who appears is immersed in the news we discuss. They're not reading something somebody else wrote to give you perspective. They are the people covering the stories that you talk about. You can only hear them here hit the subscriber button and make sure you never miss an episode you've been listening to this week in the cle